Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Hey, today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. We just wrapped up on the in the previous episode looking at the genealogies in Matthew and a lot of the discrepancies found in there and how we can uh, make light of those. And now we are about to dive into na- the nativity story. So anything you'd like to say before we just jump straight into the text? No, I don't think so. I'm just glad to be past the genealogies and moving on to the nativity. It's good. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so where do we begin? Well, today uh, we're actually going to hit a couple of different books, but uh, we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We'll work through some of that, and then we'll move back over to Luke. But let's go ahead with Matthew. Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 18 says this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Buddy, that is a loaded sentence. You ready? Let's do it. All right. So first, I think Matthew wants to make it clear. Uh, One of the points is he wants to make it clear Mary and Joseph are only betrothed. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more as we go, but and we've already mentioned it, I think, in a previous episode, um, it's a little bit like engagement, except it's it's a little more formal, a little more um, serious, maybe, than that. Uh, but again, Matthew's highlighting that they are only betrothed. But then he also adds, before they came together. And so this is Matthew kind of finding his own way of highlighting the fact that Mary is a virgin. Now, you could argue, well, there could have been a different man, but, you know, obviously that's not Matthew's point. He's trying to point out that she's a virgin. And then we have this statement that she is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to say it again. We do not have God in any form or fashion, you know, doing the man thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to. Uh, maybe step back for a second and think about, okay, in this day and age, in this culture, these people, how did they understand conception? And so, for the Jews, they saw the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, involved in every conception. Now, we might look at certain ones and think, this is miraculous and this one's not, but, but to them, Every single one was miraculous, and this isn't even just for humans, okay? Now, it's, it's even more miraculous when the Spirit is involved in a conception and it's occurring in a barren woman, right? So, so we can definitely relate to that. That's a real thing. But how much more miraculous is it when the Spirit is involved in a conception and a man is not. It's a virgin woman, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we could do, and we, we aren't going to bother reading these because we don't want to take forever, 
uh, though we don't mind going slowly. Uh, but if you wanted to look back in Psalm 104, verse 30, and you can read in and around that, or Job 33, verse 4, you'll, you'll see this idea of the Holy Spirit being involved in every conception. So, that part clear? Yeah, it has reminiscences of when Paul, in his letters uh, to different churches you know, in the East, when he has this, if this is true, how much more true is this thing that I'm trying to convey to you now? It's kind of the same kind of system where, you know, if it's true with a, a barren woman, how much more awesome is it with a virgin woman? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and that is what we're supposed to see in it, the reader. Okay. Now, uh, another point before we move on to the next uh, verse, just to say, now, how long was Mary visiting with Elizabeth? Do you remember? Didn't the text say right before Elizabeth was to give birth, that's when Mary left? Yeah. So she was there a total of, was it four, three-ish, four-ish months? Yeah. When she showed up, Elizabeth was already in her sixth month. And so it would have been around three months, right? So she comes back home. Mary leaves Zachariah and Elizabeth. She comes back home and she's a few months pregnant. Now, people show different amounts, different ways, whatever. I, I get that, but it can't be too long before someone notices. And this is even if she's trying to hide it like Elizabeth did. And we don't really know uh, uh, Mary's state of mind, whether she's, you know, hiding this thing, proud of this thing. I mean, we don't know. But at some point, and the phrase that Matthew uses is, she was found to be with child. Right? (laughs) So, (laughs) it became apparent at some point. And you must imagine, in this day, in this culture, how popular was she? The time she was pregnant? Yeah, showing up pregnant. Oh, it probably would have been a tragedy to have that happen in the context that she was in. Yeah. Back when I was in elementary school, some of the other kids had cooties, apparently. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking she showed up and she had the equivalent of cooties. Nobody wanted anything to do with her, right? (laughs) Well... We get to verse 19, and Matthew sort of goes with that idea. He writes this, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, Interesting. Yeah. Did you notice? Matthew writes that Joseph is her husband. Yep, I thought they were betrothed, which means they weren't husband and wife yet. Well, there's a real indication of just how serious betrothal is. And then, what's the end of the sentence? He resolved to divorce her. Well, but I thought they were only betrothed. Mm -hmm. Again, that's how serious betrothal is. They aren't legally married yet, meaning they haven't gone through the ceremony, they haven't consummated, right? Mm -hmm. But he's still thought of as her husband, 
And to end this betrothal actually requires a divorce. Pretty crazy, right? That's, that is wild. Yeah. But then it says, okay, so her husband, Joseph, being a just man. Okay. Now, okay. Matthew's written in Greek, right? Yes, but he's not a Greek-minded man. Right. He thinks in... Hebrew. Yeah. And most likely, if there was a conversation going on between Mary and Joseph, what language were they speaking? Hebrew. Of course. And so what we'd really like to do is try to find a way back, instead of looking at only the Greek word, could we make a connection back to the Hebrew word, what might we be saying? And I'm only pointing this out. It's going to become really important, or continue to be important as we go. If you take that Greek word and you kind of derive the Hebrew using the Septuagint translation, etc., etc., I mean, it's pretty clear. Matthew is saying that Joseph is a righteous man. Now, so far, Samuel, do we not have a lot of people being called righteous? Yep, absolutely. Zechariah and Elizabeth, and I can't exactly remember if the text said it directly, but Mary as well. <laughs> yeah, and and this is, of course, in our world where, you know, we think that there is an unrighteous, no, not one. But we'll mm-hmm. keep looking at that. We'll just keep looking. But he's a righteous man, and he is in a tough spot. Because on one hand, okay, he doesn't want to publicly shame her, but at the same time, he doesn't want to marry her. In fact, I mean, it depends on how uh, strict we want to get with the law. Marrying her may even have been considered a sin for his own part. Which, I mean, you know, how you can be nice all day long, but there's a point at which you got to go, hey, seriously, I'm not going to let you take me down with you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the reason he's feeling this is because he, he, as far as the text goes, we haven't been told that he knows about any sort of the miraculous nature of what's going on. And he might be inferring that Mary has been unfaithful to him. Is that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I guess in my mind, I was just kind of assuming that. He has no idea. And just imagine, any person alive today, you're going to marry someone, and all of a sudden, uh, she shows up pregnant. Well, what are you going to think? You don't have too many options to think about what happened. (laughs) Right, right. So, uh, yeah, he's working with the information that he's got. And so, he's doing exactly what any, uh, even faithful, righteous man would do at his time in his place, okay? But notice what they says. He was a, it says he was a just man unwilling to put her to shame. Well, this is a big deal because she is possibly subject to the death penalty by stoning. And if you're curious, you could go back to Deuteronomy chapter 22, Verses 23 to 27, and you could see how they lay this out. Okay, but here's the key. If someone is considered to be an adulteress or someone who has gotten pregnant without getting married or whatever, and they were going to stone her, they have to have witnesses. 
It's kind of funny how this is very reminiscent of even our legal system, our justice system here in the United States. You gotta have some sort of proof, some sort of witnesses. And in this case, there wouldn't have been any. And so, no matter how you slice it, Joseph probably knows she's not going to get stoned to death. But if he makes some sort of big deal about it, all it's really going to do is bring shame on her. And he just doesn't want to do that. It's kind of a play on um, what happened with Elizabeth when we heard her say that the Lord has taken away my disgrace. I mean, it seems like there's a callback to that with how important it was for her. It should be the same case for Mary in this sense, too. Yeah, yeah, it is, but it's like it's turned on its ear, right? Mm -hmm. Because her disgrace is from being pregnant as opposed to never being pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, it's true. It's true. Joseph is a genuinely nice guy. He is caring and and look what it says. He he resolved to divorce her quietly. He cared about her and her reputation. He didn't want her to suffer the rest of her life for this perceived indiscretion. And so you can see, even before Joseph knows anything more, he, he must feel hurt. He must feel slighted. But he is acting toward Mary the same way that God acts toward me and you and anyone else pretty much all day, every day. We should want to be more like Joseph. We should be concerned about people's reputations and taking care of them when they are unable to defend themselves. It's an awesome picture. Definitely. I I feel like I'm having a call back to something that um, Paul said. Didn't Paul mention something about, you know, when you're going to resolve conflict, you do it discreetly? I feel like that's a concept that, you know, the the Hebrew Bible um, upholds. So it, it, it makes sense for Joseph to, do, you know, if he is a righteous guy, then he's acting in accordance with how they culturally would want to address those things. Yeah. Um, at this moment, I'm blank on the Paul reference you're talking about, which is okay. But what we, what we do know um, from Jewish heritage back, I mean, just centuries and centuries, they were so concerned about the words that you speak and um, just... Uh, they would call it um, chesed, this idea of loving kindness. And so in in showing kindness to others and in being careful what you do with your tongue, those things together are the result of the law. Maybe not in its entirety, but you could see that they're so practical and they're very much the essence of the law. And we see Joseph acting in that manner here. He's showing loving kindness, and he is watching his tongue, careful what he's saying and doing to protect someone else. 
Gotcha. Just, I've I've got the reference now. I oh, lay it I on me. The, I have the character wrong. It's Jesus. It's not Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all in, right. <laughs> in Matthew eighteen fifteen through seventeen, Jesus says, "If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone." Ah, I see so where it's all, you're going. And you can even say, "Ah, he may have learned that from his father." You know? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Good connection. I like yeah. that. That. Yeah. Good. Good call. Yeah, I'm glad you found that because I I was total blank there where mm-hmm. you were headed. That's good. Yeah, so Joseph, he's just a good guy, just a good guy. And it's in the midst of what I would think would be hurt and betrayal. Definitely. But we go on, verse 20, Matthew writes, but as he, and we're talking about Joseph, but as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, now the 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 uh, Matthew wants us to see directly. Joseph is considering divorcing her quietly, okay, protecting her from shame, but divorcing her quietly. And then you got to wonder: Did Mary, you know, try to explain? <laughs> hey, Joseph, I just want you to know, an angel visited me. And told me this was going to happen. And boom, there it is. Right? I mean, what's Joseph going to do? I mean, why would Mary even tell him? Is there any hope of him really buying that? And we don't know. We don't know. But Joseph has this dream. And an angel, okay, just basically tells him, look, it's all okay. This is God at work. What's happening here is God's faithful fulfillment to his promises. Uh, other places in scripture, you, you might see a phrase like, God remembered Israel. Yeah, we talked about that the last couple episodes about God remembering his covenant. Yeah, and here's, here's another uh, way of seeing that coming, coming to pass, right? And notice Matthew, he does some really interesting things here. First, he calls him Joseph, and then he calls him Son of David. Well, I mean, this is obvious for someone like Joseph. He's highlighting the importance of the Davidic line. And this was pretty much all of Nazareth's group identity, right? They were the line of David. And then he says, uh, what's another one? Oh, lets him know that, that what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So he gives Joseph this assurance that he couldn't get any other way. This was not an indiscretion on Mary's part. This was not a betrayal. He doesn't need to be hurt. It's from the Holy Spirit. And then he even gives him a command. Look, it's going to be a son, and you need to call him Jesus. Now, here's a thing that you would never see 
Uh, in fact, you can't even see it in the Greek. This is one of those things where you have to go back and say, all right, what would this have looked like in the Hebrew? Because that's where the play on words is so apparent. So, Jesus, uh, Samuel, what was his name in Hebrew? Yeshua. Yeshua, right. And there's a lot of other pronunciations of it out there, and they all have reasons for it and all that, and I'm just going to say, please don't. It's Yeshua. (laughs) Yeah. Okay? It's just Yeshua. Um, But it would read something like this. So his name is Yeshua, and just so you know, the Hebrew word for save would be Yoshia. And so you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will Yoshia his people from their sins. That's dope. Yeah, it's kind of neat, right? Mm -hmm. And it's stuff that you'll never see. And I mean, there's probably a bazillion other things like this under the text that we're not going to talk about Mm because we can't see them all and know them all or whatever. But when we get, you know, cool little nuggets like that, we'll try and include them. But yeah, that's what he's doing here so far anyway. I also like to point out just real quick, here's another instance of an angel visiting someone and the first thing they say to that person is do not be afraid. Here, this is like the third time this has happened, first with Zechariah, then with Elizabeth, I'm pretty sure with Mary too, and now with um, Joseph. Yeah, yeah. Now, remember how we talked about what a standard greeting was, uh, like when Mary went to visit Elizabeth? What was the greeting? Shalom. And so (laughs) it is so consistent with the angels, you almost wonder, well, maybe that's just their standard greeting. Maybe they're not all that scary, but I don't (laughs) think so. (laughs) I actually think it is an awesome thing to see Uh an angel, you know, again, not the chubby, chubby little cherub thing, but yeah, yeah. Good call. Good call. Uh, Verse 22. And then uh, this is Matthew now kind of stepping away from the narrative proper, and he writes this. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds, which means God with us. So, Again, Matthew's stepping away from the narrative. He wants to point out that this has all been foretold. It's all in the scriptures already. And he uses as his, you know, proof text, if we want to borrow that phrase, Isaiah 7.14. Now, we've already talked about that a little bit. Do you remember that that story, uh, Samuel? Yeah, it had to do with King Ahaz and God asking him for a sign, and Ahaz is like, I don't need a sign, and God's like, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Yeah, yeah, God tells Ahaz, pick anything you want for a sign, and he refuses to do it, so God gives him one, and and we're speculating that it was Hezekiah, but everybody in, in Jewish tradition, if you will, they were pretty content that that scripture had a meaning in its time and in its place, but that it also could speak to like a foreshadowing of Messiah, okay? Mm -hmm. So, what we see here, and this is really important, just, just as a general thing, okay? Matthew, he's taking the original text out of its context, 
And and <laughs> if I could quote Daniel Lancaster, he would say, it's being ripped mercilessly. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's being ripped mercilessly from its context, right? And and it's true. He's taking it out of context and he's doing it on purpose. So so there was the the uh understanding, the expectation that in its original state when Isaiah was speaking, it actually was a real sign in that day that came to pass that people could actually see and know. And we talked about the idea that, well, it could mean virgin back in 714, Isaiah 714, but it could also mean young woman who's of age, capable of bearing children. It could mean a young wife, any of those things. But Matthew is taking it and, and he's pulling it out of that original context and saying, no, now it is explicitly about a virgin, and this is exactly what that verse was foreshadowing, right? Kind of cool. Definitely. Yeah, and he does it with good reason, right? Because, I mean, we're talking about Mary, who has become pregnant and supposedly did not know a man. So, anyway, this is this is going to be really common as we continue through the New Testament, generally. And there's a few things that you need to know about this, because if you're, if you're hearing me, you're also going to hear me in the future probably bash some people who are taking New Testament scriptures completely out of context and ruining the story, right? So, for me to try to be consistent here, I want to explain Number one, what's happening here? This is, this is so, so very Jewish. I mean, if you were Jewish and alive back in that day, this would have been a very common approach to, to teaching from the scriptures, okay? Uh, but it's important to understand that this was done, number one, with a firm grasp of the original context and intent. So, so Matthew knew what the original was about, and he expected his reader to also have a firm grasp. Okay. Additionally, Matthew has a firm grasp of the overarching story. I mean, especially by the time he's writing this gospel, he's lived, been with Jesus, saw the death, had the Holy Spirit, the teaching, everything happening, right? He's got a firm grasp of the overarching story, and... There was also an an expectation of the reader that they also would have that same or a similar firm grasp. Mm -hmm. And so the point is that pulling something out of its context and using it to teach or show some new thing isn't, isn't a bad idea. It was very common in this day and age, but it's important that it's done with an understanding. And what I get irritated at, and you'll probably hear me sometime in the future making a deal out of, is when people take things, rip them out of their context to try to teach something new, and they don't actually understand either the original content or the overarching story and anything else. They're just making stuff up. And that mm-hmm. bugs me. So you'll hear about that later. Yeah. It, what you're saying that Matthew's doing is so different than 
someone r- ripping a verse out of context to use as a form of a defense for whatever belief system they're trying to uphold about, you know, their faith or whatever you want to throw that into um, because they, you know, they treat the text as this infallible, inerrant, and whatever, uh, this Hebrew word's going to sound weird, but the pashat, the whatever the text reads, then that is 100% what it means, like, Matthew's doing something way different, like what you've said. It's almost like this form of wonder and discovery where they they hold that original narrative so highly, and then they look at it and say, oh my gosh, like, could this actually be tied to our Messiah that we've been waiting for? Like, that, yeah. that, that has such a different tone than saying, you know, this is why my belief system is right, because the Bible says this here in this verse without ever addressing anything else about its context. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's the point is that in all of it, it all has to fit neatly into the story. And so often it just doesn't. But people just making stuff mm-hmm. up. And Jewish people treat that story, you know, they they hold the severity of Sinai in their minds and hearts and they would not dare try to mess with the story that God you know, physically gave them on that mountain together as a nation of people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's sometimes I think people look back and look at them and they think, oh, they're just being too, too stiff, too literal. They don't understand this or they don't understand that. And they actually, uh, I mean, it, it's so ironic because they're, they're judging the Jewish people. They're judging their understanding of Scripture. They're judging all of these things simply because they're not accepting of the Messiah, which, I mean, how can you hardly blame them? Because the Messiah that we present to them is so not in tune with the story that they know, when in actuality, he really is. And so that's part of what we're doing, trying to correct that. But they... they, they pick on the Jews like there's there's something wrong with them, the way they see the world, the way they see things. And ironically, it is usually the ones pointing the finger who are actually sitting in ignorance and misunderstanding and, and totally messing up the story. Mm-hmm. You know, it has nothing to do with salvation or not salvation or this or that or whatever. It's just, wow, you're just missing it. You're, yeah. you're you're missing the goodness of the big picture. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. That's what we're trying to get back. That's right. Yeah. But let's get back to Matthew. <laughs> he continues, verse 24, and he says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth. To a son, and he called his name Jesus. So apparently, that dream, the words that the angel spoke, they were enough for Joseph. Whatever he felt before that was all gone. He married Mary. And this act alone, I mean, if you kind of think about it, you get back in that time, back in that situation. That act alone probably quieted 
a substantial portion of the scandal. I mean, you can even imagine people maybe just kind of thinking to themselves, you know what? The baby was probably his and he was just marrying her, you know, do the, doing the right thing. Similar to, well, I don't know if people do that anymore, but <laughs> they used to, yeah. right? Um, just doing the right thing. But interestingly, he waits until after the birth of the child to consummate the marriage. And, I mean, I don't know. If if you were Joseph and you're thinking, hey, that's the Messiah in there. <laughs> well, you might not want to do that either, right? No. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of weird. Um, but what we see is Joseph immediately being obedient when he is confident that the Lord is speaking to him. That one final obedience, he names the child as he was commanded. It's good. Some good characters in this story, even before we start hearing about life of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. But we're getting there. Let's uh, let's keep going. Um, I'm having the, the feeling that we're going to not get near as much done as we planned, but it's all right. We'll keep making some progress and mm-hmm. see what we got. Um, but now we're going to move from the book of Matthew. We're going to switch over to the book of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and we're going to see a different different side of this story. It's, it's uh, pretty much the continuation from what we saw in Matthew. So in, in Luke 2, 1, he writes this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay, that kind of all sounds like detailed gobbledygook or something, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay, well, let's see if we can break it down. First of all, a registration, um, you, you might also think of it as the word census, something of that nature. Um, the point is, they're trying to to figure out exactly who belongs where, in what province, all that kind of stuff, and it's usually... Uh, for a reason. We'll talk about that uh, as we go. But somehow, Joseph, uh, he's going to get wrapped up in this census that we're talking about. But before we can talk about that, we got a little bit of trouble, Samuel. What's that? This Quirinius, the governor of Syria, he was governor from about the year 6 through 9 A.D. Okay. And that's way too late for this story. See, Jesus was born somewhere in the few years before we even get to what we consider A.D. Okay. So that's kind of weird, right? What What's yeah. going on? Well, here's a couple things. And see, now here's the in- another interesting point. Luke is the one who said that he was going to provide the really ordered gospel, right? The really <laughs> yeah. good one. And every time he talks, we seem to run into some trouble. But here we go. Um, What we can do is go back in history and just say, okay, do we have any sort of evidence for a census occurring anywhere around this time? Well, the closest one seems to be around 8 BC. Now, that's at least better, but that's a little early. Okay? 
Now, interesting side note, some historians think that they have proof where this Quirinius was actually serving at an earlier date. So, I mean, maybe it's like he served and then he took some time away and then he came back and served as governor of Syria or something. Maybe he was governor both times. I don't, we, we don't know. The historians, they think they know. And, and what's interesting about that is around the time from the year 6 through 4 BC. Now that, that really fits with the story, but that one's kind of weak. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure some of those historians wouldn't call it weak, but <laughs> it, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a real uh, commonly agreed upon thing. But, you know, it's a piece of information. It's out there. But here's another thing. These, these registrations, these census, uh, th- they took years to perform, right? I mean, we think we're in America today. Oh, it's the year of the census. So they mail out all this stuff. We fill it out. We mail it back in. Maybe somebody visits your door, whatever it might be. But it's over. But these took years to happen. And so if we think about this and we go, well... We're pretty confident, historically speaking, there was a census in 8 BC. And we're pretty confident that it takes years to perform. And may or may not be valuable information. It's possible that this Quirinius actually served a little earlier. You put all those things together and you can actually say, well, I don't know. Maybe Luke's story is actually right on the money. And and the more we discover, historically, archaeologically, whatever, it may become more and more and more correct. But at the moment, it's still a little bit shaky, right? And we just kind of have to live with that. And then there's one other tiny bit, just in case it matters. You know, sometimes there's more than one way to skin a cat. And in this case, there's more than one way to translate that final sentence. It could be. And it's, it's a very reasonable alternate translation. We could translate it this way. This was the first registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And if that was the more appropriate translation, that just makes it even stronger still. Yeah. But, okay, it's, it's a hard little part of the story because people can poke holes in it. And, you know, there's just a little bit of... Uh, ammunition to to fight against the naysayers uh there are reasons to Mm -hmm. think maybe luke knows what he's talking about but yeah that's enough for that let's go on says this verse three and all went to be registered each to his own town and joseph also went up from galilee from the town of nazareth to judea to the city of david which is called bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Hmm. So, according to Luke, Joseph has to go to Bethlehem. It's his ancestral land. And he has to do this I mean, it kind of reads like it's because that's what everyone was doing. It's what everybody had to do, right? Except the historians, they don't think that was the normal case. They don't think that it was actually common that everyone had to go. You could be registered 
away from your home. So yet another little wrench in the work, Samuel. But we got this. There were two common reasons for a census. One of them had to do with military service, and the other had to do with taxation. Military service doesn't seem very likely in this circumstance. Taxation definitely would, especially, and this is very reasonable and possibly even likely, that Joseph would have had some land back in and around Bethlehem. And so taxation makes a whole bunch of sense. So the the popular thought, if we could say that, is that Joseph, he did own land and he was traveling um, for this registration for the purposes of taxation. Okay. We don't really know, but we're trying to, we're trying to find those little bits of information that can help us make some sense of what Luke is writing because he seems to think it's very well ordered and very well verified. And we're just trying to figure out how these things can be so. Mm -hmm. But their trip uh, took about, well, I don't know how long it took. It was about 85 miles. So you imagine it whatever way you want. You got Joseph, you got Mary. She is, and maybe we don't know this yet, but she's nine months pregnant. They've got to travel 85 miles. How long do you think that took her, Samuel? That's quite a while. They didn't have uh, fast modes of transportation back then. Yeah, yeah. And they're in the desert. Yeah, it had to be quite a journey. But it's interesting. What Luke does here, because remember he said, and this all sounds like, like Luke is, he's trying too hard to flower it up or something like that. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he's of the house and lineage of David, right? He just went on and on. What's that about? Well, if you would, Samuel, why don't you go back, look in Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Read me what you see there. Okay. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Yeah. Now, interestingly, Micah, a prophet of the Old Testament, he's, he's calling this out. And I think it's very reasonable to look back and say, hey, Luke, Luke is going back to this verse and he's pointing out all of these details because he wants it to be seen that this, this lines up with the things that have been foretold. And then another interesting thing about that Micah verse is when he says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What's that make you think of, Samuel? Makes me think of uh, the wisdom, the word. That's right. Yeah. It connects back to our very first episode from John, mm-hmm. right? So so I, there's there's so much in these verses, in these words, connecting things together. It's uh, We're just, again, we're just trying to point out the things that we notice along the way, things that help... Uh, connect all of the New Testament back to the Old Testament. But I got to ask, did you notice something weird about verse five? Uh, Let's see. Well, they still called Joseph and Mary betrothed. 
And I thought that um, yeah. he had that dream or vision with the angel, and then he married her. Yeah. Matthew's story makes it sound like Joseph marries her. And, I mean, we don't know the timing, but it seems like somewhere between the third month and the ninth month, I mean, Joseph, he, he would have married her fairly early on, right? And yet they're still calling Mary his betrothed. What's up with that? Why would that be? Yeah. Well, here you go. The theory goes something like this. And and I think it's actually kind of reasonable, reasonable even the way that we might look at things today. But it, 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 just consider this. Mary wouldn't have been considered wife until the marriage was consummated. And remember what's the last thing that uh, Matthew told us. Joseph took her as a wife, but what? Did not know her until after Jesus was born. Yeah, yeah. So Joseph could have married her, right? They could have gone through the ceremony, and, and they would have been, I don't know, technically, legally married. And yet, because it wasn't consummated... Luke might be actually highlighting that in a way that's different than the way Matthew did, but the same point, that they were still only betrothed because they didn't actually consummate. Mm -hmm. It's just an interesting thing. And, you know, again, this is, people could look at these things and poke holes, well, you can't even decide, are they betrothed, are they married, what's going on? Well, there's a lot behind this, culturally, and we don't know everything because we aren't there, we aren't them. It's just different. And so we're, 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 we're searching. How can these things make sense? Well, and again, I, I sound like a broken record, but it's calling back to Genesis once again with the creation of woman whenever it says, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Like if, they're, yes. if their whole narrative of life and how they interact with God and people— you know, it's all founded on Genesis and, you know, the the totality of man and wife together are becoming one, then that makes sense for why the consummation part of it ha- holds so much weight to them because that is, you know, the act of showing that they have stopped becoming separate and have become one together. Yes, exactly. What a great point. And that's, I think, a reasonable way to look at the little the confusion or discrepancy, however you might view that scripture, that really, it just brings a lot mm-hmm. to the table. So that's good. That's good. So, but now, okay, this is where we start getting into the really good part of the story. So let's keep going. Verse six, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. rut <laughs> And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Okay, so here they are, traveling to see the tax man. They get to Bethlehem. We don't really know how long they were there. It makes it seem like they weren't there very long. Mary goes into labor, and Luke does something. He specifically calls the child the firstborn. Now, okay, I get it. There's something obvious about that, but... It could be important because 
this kind of presents a very strong connection back to something in Numbers. And again, these are Jews living under the covenant. This is all important stuff. So Samuel, can you read me Numbers chapter 3, verse 13? Yes, I can. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Yeah. People often either miss or forget when they came out of Egypt, God redeemed them. One of the things he did, what what was the last plague, Samuel? Uh, the death of the firstborns. Yeah. And how? What, what did God do for Israel? Well, he brought them out of the hand of bondage and slavery to Egypt. It's almost like a trade. It's like, you know, I'm going <laughs> to inflict this stuff on Egypt so that they have no hold on you anymore. But in return, you're going to give me, you're going to dedicate all of your firstborn sons to me in return. Yeah. So he had them paint the blood around their doorposts so that the angel of death would skip that house. And so their firstborn were saved. Mm -hmm. And so God says, you know what? All of the firstborn are mine. The ones in Egypt that weren't protected by the blood, okay, they're dead. Yours are alive, but they're still mine. This is an important concept to have in our heads as we continue reading, okay? So, number one, calls him firstborn, so we know he must be consecrated to the Lord. And second, this also adds a little bit of fuel for the argument about whether Jesus was an only child. Have you ever heard that, Samuel? I actually haven't. I feel like I've heard more about his brother than him being alone. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Uh, there, There are people who argue that he was an only child, and in this case, and and I don't know if Luke intended this, and I don't know if it's proper for us to try to do it, but to call Jesus the firstborn, you know, you could maybe infer that there were others born. Eh, we don't know, but whatever. Luke, uh, he calls him the firstborn. Um, and uh, just so you know, uh, what do they call that? A uh, spoiler alert? Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna hold to the idea that Jesus did in fact have siblings. So whatever, we'll get there. But uh, the swaddling cloths. All right. Uh, if you've ever had a baby, one of the things you well, okay. Here's my favorite, favorite, favorite all time memory. When you got the baby, and maybe it's like bath time or something like that, and they're getting all washed, having fun, playing, whatever. But then uh, at some point they start to get cold. And so you pull them out of the bath and you get them dried off and then you lay them down on a blanket. You got their head up on one corner and you wrap the other corner up over them from the bottom and then one from the side and one from the other side. We used to call it the burrito wrap, (laughs) right? Yeah, but you get them all wrapped up and you hold them close and they get all warm and you can just tell that child at that moment is so content. Well, when you hear wrapped him in swaddling cloths, I think that's a really good image for you to have in your head. That's similar to what they were doing then, and it was providing comfort and security for that little baby, right? That's it's cool. kind of a cool picture. Yeah. 
And then he adds another thing. Laid him in a manger. Okay. Do you know what a manger is? It's a device that they built. They put the food in where the farm animals would eat out of. Yeah. It's just a feeding trough. There's nothing special or fancy here. But you got to wonder, why the heck did they do that? And then he answers, because there was no place for them in the end. Now, this is going to be hard because I think we're going to we're going to destroy some some very common cultural iconic images of what the 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 scene looked like. OK, yeah, got some lullaby effect going on. Yeah. And, and here's here's the thing. Um, I don't think that we can say that it was impossible that there was some form of public lodging that they have been, uh, you know, could have been trying to get in or whatever. But it's really unlikely. It's so much more likely that they were trying to stay with some sort of relatives back in the area. And even if they weren't relatives, it would have been far more common to stay at someone's home than in like some sort of public place or something, right? And to to add to that idea is how these first century homes were built. Um, there was often uh, like the lower area of the house. Uh, they they weren't single story. It was actually pretty common to have multiple stories, which I don't know sounds kind of weird, but it was. The lower area was usually where they would bring their smaller animals in at night to keep them safe. And so the picture that you can imagine is that they're at someone's house, but it's also, it's, it's already kind of full. And so they don't really have room, but they let them go stay down where the animals are or would be at least at night. And there's actually practically, I could think you, you might even think there's some advantage to that because it's obviously going to be more private. I don't know about you, but I'm not when I go have a baby in the living room or something, (laughs) right? Um, but here's another thing. This is very interesting. Some of the earliest traditions have it that Jesus was actually born in a cave. And one of the most famous is you could go to read Origen, right? He actually talks about for the centuries following Jesus' birth, they actually had people coming to visit from, from outside Jerusalem, Judea, everywhere outside there, coming to see the place where this this Messiah was born, and and they took them to a cave, and it was it was actually fairly common for people to build their homes above a cave. That way, they could bring the animals in there, care for them. They lived above. I'm sure that probably helped some with the smell and this and that, whatever. But it would have been not uncommon at all for there to have been a home above a cave. And for Jesus, Mary, uh, Joseph, everybody, they'd have been down in that cave, possibly with animals, possibly with not. It never says the animals were there, um, but but that could have been a real thing. And so it actually fits with some of the historical writings. So anyway, you got that. And then one final point, um, as long as we're destroying people's uh, images, this is highly likely to have occurred sometime during the fall months. And I'm not going to, you know, uh, embarrass myself by trying to say it was on a specific date or something like that. It, it, there's many 
really compelling arguments for different dates. Uh, it's tough to pick one, but it probably wasn't December 25th. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean you need to change when you celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December. That's all fine, but it's just kind of good to know, look, what's really going on in the story. This is during the fall months. So just know yeah. that that's a thing. Yeah. And I don't think anything that you've said takes away from what most people have been taught about the nativity scene of the humility of the setting where Jesus was born. I don't think anything that you've said takes away from that. If anything, it, you know, enriches it by giving you more detail than, you know, the common picture that people have of a nativity scene. Yeah. Well, I know it does for me. I want to know details. And even when we can't really know that we know, well, I want to know what the best possible speculation is because it helps me develop a picture mm-hmm. in my mind. And and I don't know about you. For me, it's it's much more like a movie. I, I yeah. want to see how that what that looked like. And it sadly it doesn't fit any of the movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we definitely did not choose this particular location to stop. But I think it's probably a good place. I think we ought to cut this episode right here. Okay, yeah, I think it's a good idea. He just got born, and we'll pick up with what happens, you know, now that he's in the world. Yes, and because he was in Bethlehem, he was born. But you and I, being from Kentucky, know that if he had been born here, he would have been borned. <laughs> Right. right? Or he would have been birthed. <laughs> That's right. So, anyway, uh, I, I think we just cut right here. Okie dokie. Oh! Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at www.okidokimost.com for more information or to listen online. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.